I was at a preaching conference in Austin several years ago, and uh, one of these nights they were honoring a 90-year-old preacher. I can't remember where this guy preached or what his name was even, but I know he preached for like decades and decades. This is a 90-year-old preacher, and they brought him up, and we honored him, and everybody clapped or whatever, and then he got behind the microphone, and here's what he said. He goes, here's the deal with being a 90-year-old preacher. He said, all my friends are already up in heaven, and they think I didn't make it. (laughs) Now, one of my favorite stories about heaven is about the Sunday school teacher. She was teaching her fourth grade Sunday school class one Sunday morning, and she asked the question, everybody raise your hand if you want to go to heaven. And everybody's hands went up except for one little kid in the back. And so she asked it again, if you want to go to heaven... Raise your hand. And everybody in the class, their hands shot up except for this one little kid in the back. And so she starts walking toward him. Jonathan, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? And he said, oh, when I die, yeah. I I thought you were getting up a group to go right now. (laughs) I think the little jokes and the little stories we tell about heaven reflect our knowledge on the topic or sometimes our lack of knowledge on the topic. Sometimes the words we say betray our attitude about heaven. And sometimes I'm afraid that attitude is, I'd rather not. Not right now, anyway. I mean, life here on earth, here in Texas, in 2023, it's not bad. It's pretty good. I'm sure heaven is going to be great one of these days, but let's just wait until that time. Sometimes our songs betray that attitude. I'd like to stay here longer than man's allotted days. We sing stuff like this, right? But the church's prayer for centuries, almost since day one, has been, Lord, come quickly. Maranatha, that's the Aramaic word that's used in the New Testament. That's the church's prayer. Lord, come quickly. Lord, come soon. Lord, come right now. That's the prayer that Christians pray around the table every week together. And our Lord's answer is, I am coming soon. I'm coming soon. Turn to Revelation with me, please. Man, some of y'all just went on high alert right there. Revelation? (laughs) It's all right. It's okay. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and uh, it does give us problems from time to time. I think Revelation is probably the most misunderstood, misapplied, misinterpreted, and mispreached book in the whole Bible, or second most, I guess, behind 1 Corinthians, I would probably argue. And a lot of people are so scared of Revelation, you know, so they just avoid it or they ignore it. They act like it's not even there. I don't want to do anything with Revelation. Some people are too into Revelation. You know what I'm talking about? They're like obsessed with it. And they read Revelation and they read about penicillin and Apache helicopters and Russia and whatever Nikki Haley had for lunch yesterday. You know, that's in Revelation. It's a, Okay, that's too much. All right? But Revelation, I think, needs to be read. It was given to the church for a reason. And we avoid it or ignore it at our own peril. I love the way Randy Harris boils it down. Randy Harris, you've heard me say this. There's only three points to Revelation. It's super easy. Anybody can get it. Point number one, God's team wins. Point number two, you need to pick a team. Point number three, 
Don't be an idiot, okay? That's, that's Revelation in a nutshell. So Revelation chapter 1, we're going to do the whole book like in 25 minutes. You ready? Revelation 1. We see that God gave the revelation to Jesus, who then gave it to an angel, who then showed it to John, and then John wrote it all down. Everything he hears, everything he sees, the Word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, he wrote it down for us. It's been preserved and passed on to us, to encourage us, to comfort us, to motivate us, to bless us. Look at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The time is near. There's the thing we're going to be focusing on together this morning. The time is near, right out of the gate, right here in the opening lines. This, this is breaking news. This is the most important thing in Revelation. This is so vital to the encouragement and the hope of God's people. There's not even time for a proper introduction to this letter. You know, most biblical letters would have started to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace, how's it going, how are the kids, did you see the Tubi commercial last Sunday, you know? And then, hey, you need to know the time is near. No, that's not how this letter starts at all. This letter says, here's the word of God. Here's the testimony of Christ. The time is near. It's that important. Jesus is coming soon. Verse 7, look, behold, check it out. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So shall it be. Amen. Revelation chapter 2, repent therefore, Jesus says, I will soon come to you. Revelation chapter 3, again, our Lord says, I am coming soon. Throughout the entire book of Revelation, there's this feeling of nearness, imminence. This is urgent. This is happening, and it's going to happen quickly. There's this breathless anticipation, I think built into Revelation, kind of like when you go to bed on Christmas Eve and you've been really good all year. Of course, it also works the other way. If your parents got a phone call from the teacher, there's a breathless anticipation that goes like, you know, I know my dad gets off work any minute now and he's coming very soon, right? Either way, there's this urgency, this, this anticipation, I am coming soon. Three times in the closing paragraphs of the Bible, Three times in the last 15 verses of Scripture, Jesus says, Behold, the Greek word is idu. It just means look at this. Check this out, right? Behold, I am coming soon. Yes, he says, chapter 22, verse 20, these are the very last recorded words of Jesus that we have from the Lord's mouth to his people. I am coming soon. That was like 2,000 years ago. I am coming soon. Why does he say that if he's not? I think Jesus says, I am coming soon to encourage us, to comfort us, to empower us, to keep us going. Because church, we have a problem. We have a big problem. This earth and its people are being tortured right now, tortured by war, 
tortured by disease and violence and death and poverty and greed and lust and injustice and slavery and idolatry, on and on, right? The earth that God created and calls good, the people God created and calls very good, are paralyzed by Satan, we're imprisoned by sin, we're terrified of death. All of creation is in bondage. Genesis 3 calls it the curse. The curse that came upon all of creation the very moment Adam and Eve decided in the Garden of Eden they're going to do things the way they want to do them. This curse that has all of creation groaning. Romans chapter 8, we we know about this, this groaning to be set free. Verse 22 says, We know the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. You know what this is talking about. There's evidence of the curse on every channel, on every page, on every news feed on your phone. The earthquake in Turkey, the shooting at Michigan State, Russia and Ukraine and East Palestine, Ohio and El Paso, Texas and Austin and D.C. and Hollywood. I mean, we know about the curse. Can I get an amen on that? It's everywhere, right? It's in front of us every minute of every day. But can we, just for today, can we forget about all of those things? And we, can we just acknowledge in here that each one of us is personally wrapped up in the curse? It's personal with us. Think about it. Broken families? Bad news from the doctor? A pink slip at work? Divorce, addiction, depression, financial stresses. Look at our prayer list in the bulletin and tell me we're not wrapped up in the curse from Genesis 3. Church, we are living in dangerous and uncertain times. But our Heavenly Father, in a completely incomprehensible act of compassion and love, he jumps right into the middle of our unholy mess. And he makes a bunch of holy, holy promises. Still in Romans chapter 8. We wait eagerly for our adoption as children, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved. If we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager anticipation. The creation itself, verse 21, will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Jesus says, I am coming soon. This is happening soon. Well, how? My wife, Carrie Ann, knows for a fact that when I say, just a minute, I don't mean a literal 60 seconds. My children learned at a very early age that the last three minutes of a football game on TV can take almost an hour. Amen? They know this. And so let's, let's acknowledge, church, that for whatever reason, God wants us to wait. 
We have to wait. Do you hate to wait? This is confession time. Do you hate to wait? I hate to wait. Am I the only one? No. Oh, yeah. Somebody said, yeah. <laughs> you give it about 10 more minutes, you can't wait till this sermon's over. I know that. <laughs> Look, I hate to wait. And in this age of cell phones and high-speed internet and drive throughs and five-minute oil changes, we don't have to wait for anything. None of us is made to wait anymore. And there's no such thing as a five-minute oil change. I just kind of made that up. Don't let anybody tell you there is. But we don't have to wait. We hate to wait. And so when we're made to wait, we go crazy, right? Now, some people have a problem with waiting. I mean like a real problem. Like, and I'll confess to this, when I'm approaching a red light and I'm coming up behind another car that's driving behind me, sometimes I'll switch to the other lane at the last second just so I can be the first one through the green light. Anybody do that? Okay, now you people who have a real problem might connect with this. You're approaching a red light and there's a car in each of those three lanes. Do you ever do a quick evaluation of the make and model of each car? And even look at the driver maybe before you commit to one of those lanes? You know what I'm talking about? Like here's a minivan with a bunch of kids in it. Here's an old beat up truck with a bunch of roofers in it. Here's a 45-year-old guy in a black charger. You know, I'm over here. I'm behind that guy because my wait time is going to be shorter. I don't like to wait. You can do the same thing at the grocery store, right? There's three lanes and you're like, you're, you're trying to figure it out. That lady looks like she's going to write a check. You know, I'm not over here. <laughs> And then this checker's going super fast. This is Whitney's lane. You know, I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be right here in this lane. Now, you've got a real problem when you commit to the lane, but you watch the other two to see where you would have been if you had chosen correctly, right? <laughs> we hate to wait. Nobody likes to wait. But Jesus says, in a little while, in a little while, Revelation 6, how long, O sovereign Lord? How long until you return and make everything right? And the saints are told, wait a little longer. Revelation 17, the evil king will reign for a little while. Same thing is going on in Habakkuk. The prophet is talking to God. What about the wickedness, God? He's kind of shaking his fist at the Lord. What about all the violence and the evil and the sin in the world? When are you going to do something, Lord? The Hebrew word is nabot. Nabot means, why do you stand there and not do anything? Here's what the Lord says, Habakkuk 2, verse 3. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God says it's a done deal, okay? It's already happened, but you got to wait for it. Psalm 33, we wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. So church, we wait. You, you wait in the middle of your sickness. You wait. In the middle of your trial, you wait. In the middle of your suffering, in the middle of your trouble, in the middle of your whatever it is, your thing five, you wait. And while you wait, to help you wait, to give you the strength and the encouragement to wait, God through Christ, through the angel, through John, has given us this amazingly wonderful, picture 
Revelation 21. Then I saw. John saw it, okay? He saw this. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with his people, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they're true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the end, God creates the new heavens and the new earth. Behold, God says, check it out. Look at this. I am making everything new. And he says, it is done. And then the Lord takes John on this tour of the new Jerusalem, this, this new garden of Eden, the new heavens and earth, Revelation chapter 22, where everything that's broken is now fixed and everything that's gone wrong is now made right. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Remember that curse that was announced in Genesis 3? Look at Revelation 22 verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. Can I get an amen? amen? The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face. Amen. No more death, no more disease, no more sickness, no more crying, no more hunger, no more thirst. No more pain, no more stress, no more disappointment. All of our human needs perfectly and finally met. Hunger, thirst, relationships, all of it fixed forever in all of God's heavenly glory. And the church says, amen. And we say yes. And we say, Lord, come quickly. How much longer, Lord? And the Lord says, I'm coming soon. In a little while, there's a delay. And we don't like to wait. And God knows that. He knows and I think he shows us these pictures to give us hope so we can hang on. But I don't want us to ignore the tension this morning, okay? There is a tension here. Can we admit when Jesus says, I am coming soon, and that was 2,000 years ago? I mean, there's something we've got to deal with here. And then, so let me say three super quick things about this. Number one, I think when Jesus says, I am coming soon, and he hasn't yet, I think that one of the things that tells us is that God's kingdom just has to come. It just has to come. Evil is everywhere around us. Sin just seems to reign in this world. And, and surely that's an affront to God's great purpose. Surely that's an insult to God's holiness and His love. If our God is righteous, and if He is the perfect judge, 
And he is, by the way. He's going to fix all of it. His kingdom is going to come. Secondly, Jesus is patient to return. He is patient. This delay in his coming is evidence of God's great patience and grace. He, there we go. I was distracted by the screens. Okay, okay, there we are. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Where are we going? Let's go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter says God is not slow, and I wrestle with this, right? 2 Peter chapter 3, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's key, church. God's not slow. He's patient. His plan for you and His plan for the world is saturated with His love. It is soaked in His compassion and His mercy. Our God will wait. He'll wait a long time for you and people you don't even know. He'll wait. And our own lives of faithfulness and gentleness and patience, even in the face of horrible suffering, our lives are very Christ-like that way. They're formative for us. They're also a powerful testimony to the people around us. And then the third thing here, when Jesus says, I am coming soon, I think that assures us that our time of trial does have a limit. The time for sorrow and pain, church, it's not indefinite. Revelation 12 says the devil is ticked off because he knows his time is short. And we're supposed to know that too. According to God's plan, there is a limit. We don't know when it's going to end, but we do know it will end. The day is appointed. It's already on God's calendar. He hasn't forgotten about it. God hasn't changed his mind about it. I am coming soon. He is. That's our hope. We know that what our God has started, he will finish. Our faithful Lord is bringing this thing to completion. Back to Revelation chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. Church, our hope is not wishing this is true. It's knowing how it turns out and knowing that it will turn out. But we are called to wait. And here's the last thing. We are called to wait in a certain way. We don't just sit back in our comfortable chairs with our feet propped up eating popcorn just waiting for the show to start. This is a different kind of waiting. The book of Revelation contains a call, church. A big time call. And it's not, it's not a military call, okay? This is not, we got to get ready to rumble, Okay? Revelation is not a call for us to beat our plows into swords and go fight the battle of Armageddon, okay? There is no battle of Armageddon, kind of. There kind of is. But you're not in it, right? You're not in it. All the evil of this planet is going to be annihilated. All the sin is going to be punished. But you're not the judge and you're not the jury. You're certainly not the executioner. We know this, right? Wait, Alan, there is a battle of Armageddon coming, isn't there? Wait a second. I, I know there is. It's in the Bible. 
There's this huge battle between good and evil. It's going to be the ultimate showdown, and, and good's going to prevail, and, and that's going to inaugurate finally the kingdom of God. Okay, kind of. Have you looked at that? Look at Revelation 20. Let's look at Armageddon. Revelation chapter 20. Talk about how we're supposed to wait. We have to wait in a certain way. Here's, here's Armageddon. Satan calls together all the wicked of the world. Verse 8. He gathers them for battle, it says. All the evil in the whole universe. They're coming from all four corners of the earth, it says. Gathering for battle against all of God's children. Verse 8. In number, they are like the sands on the seashore. There's too many to count. This is overwhelming to us. Verse 9, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. Okay, this is the picture. All the evil of the world surrounding God's people. This is what Jesus shows to John. God's children huddled together, surrounded by all kinds of evil. Dark forces and wicked powers coming at us from every direction. All the evil in the world. All of it lined up to destroy God's church. This is going to be epic. You ready? Man, all of salvation history has been building to this one great battle. You ready? But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. The devil is thrown into a lake of burning sulfur where he is tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. That is not much of a battle. It's over before it even starts. Satan never even touches the saints. Not one scratch. It's like Jesus just rides up on his white horse and he looks at Satan and all the evil forces and he says, make my day, punk. You know, boom, whoosh, it's over. Everything is over. Everything God promised has come to be and we don't raise a hand. We don't raise a weapon. This is a hard lesson for us. But in Revelation, the ones who are called conquerors, the ones who are deemed overcomers, the ones who are called the victors are not the ones who fight. They're the ones who faithfully submit to suffering and to death, totally trusting God and God only to deliver. In Revelation, God completely takes care of all the evil and all the pain and all the sin. He does it totally. This vision of God's ultimate victory is what moved the patriarchs as they walked with God and, and served Him. This vision, this picture of the new heavens and the new earth, that's what motivated the prophets as they suffered and died with God's people and all the evil around them. The Bible says, knowing that he was returning to the Father in heaven is what gave Jesus the courage he needed to walk to the cross as a lamb, as a sacrificial lamb. Again, th this is hard for us. Jesus is not a lion. He's a lamb. Now, the messianic expectation was for a lion. 
All of God's people were looking for a lion. We want a lion. We want somebody who's going to be strong and powerful and mighty and threatening and somebody who's going to kill all of our enemies and wipe us out and wipe them out and give us great power. They were all looking for somebody like David, like the Lion of Judah. That's what they called all of their kings. That's what they were looking for. And it's obvious that's, that's even what John was looking for. If you go back to Revelation chapter 5, John's really upset because there's nobody who can open up the seals. There's nobody who can open up the scroll. And one of the elders says, hang on a second, don't weep. Verse 5, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and break the, ske- the, the seals. But John sees a lamb. John looks for the lion There is no lion. It's a lamb looking like it's been killed, it says. Verse 6, it's a lamb, not a lion. And John sees the lamb is on the throne. They're worshiping the lamb, it says. The lamb is the one who opens the scrolls and inaugurates the last days, not a lion. They fell down, verse 8, and worshiped the Lamb. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals because you were slain. It's because the Lamb was killed that He is worthy. And with your blood, you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Jesus could have come here with power. He didn't. He came here in weakness. Jesus could have asserted His rights. He didn't. He gave them up. Jesus could have stood against his enemies. He didn't. He turned the other cheek in forgiveness and love. Jesus could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. When Revelation 19 says the Lord Almighty rides on a white horse and his robe is dipped in blood... We know it's his own blood that he's covered in. You know, the warrior says, I will fight to make things right. I will kill for you. The lamb says, I will serve and sacrifice to make things right. I will die for you. That's the difference. Jesus the Christ overcomes pain and anguish. He defeats fear and evil. He destroys sin and death forever with mercy and gentleness and love and forgiveness and suffering. Worthy is the Lamb. So what about us? What about you? I think it's important for you to know that the victory of Jesus Christ has already been won. It's already been won by his amazing life and his sacrificial death and his glorious resurrection. And so we wait today with that expectation that it's already done. We live into that expectation like it's already here. We live every moment today in light of what we know is really and ultimately happening It's like if you get on a plane at DFW and that plane's heading for Israel and as soon as you sit down on that plane, you set your clock forward eight hours. 
and you get on that plane, and the plane takes off, and 10 o'clock in the morning, you're eating dinner. Why? Because you're trying to live into the reality that in Israel, where you're going, it's already dinner time. And at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, you try to sleep for seven hours. Why? Because the reality is, in Israel, where you're going, it's already bedtime. That's how we wait. That's how we live. Not sitting around for the future, but by living into the future right now. Ephesians 2 says we're already right now exalted and sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven with Jesus Christ. Church, we are. We're already there. So let's live into that. Let's wait like that. Let's acknowledge it. Let's submit to it. And let's testify and let's witness and let's change the world. Not with power or threat or numbers or force or violence or volume or fighting. Not with any of the ways of the world. But with grace and patience and gentleness and forgiveness and love. And suffering maybe. But only for a while. And we pray. We pray. There's a, there's a man named Alan Bosak. As apartheid was coming to an end in South Africa, Alan Bosak wrote his own Maranatha prayer. He wrote this in 1986, and I'd like us to pray this prayer together. Would you all stand with me, please? There's, there's five of these lines. I'll, I'll pray the line if you'll uh, pray the Lord come Jesus. Let's do this as a church. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. For the pain and the tears and the anguish must end. For the comfort of this world is no comfort at all. For there must be an end to the struggle and the unnecessary dying. For the patterns of this world must change for hate must turn to love and fear must turn to joy amen the end of revelation is meant to encourage us and to give us comfort and hope in a broken and dark world hope to press on faithfully and endure but it's also meant as an invitation this is an invitation the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come, and whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen.